Turn to your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going through the book of Hebrews, and we're going to try to cover the, the last half of the chapter tonight. The theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christianity over Judaism, the superiority of Christ over everybody. Uh, Paul's um, uh, identified the, that uh, Christ was superior to Moses. He's identified that Christ was superior to Aaron and the priesthood. He's uh, made the case in chapter 9 about uh, Jesus being the high priest and uh, a greater sacrifice. Now, the, the, uh, the information that Paul gives us about Christ being our high priest is, uh, is interesting because there's really no Old Testament prophecy that's spelled out to look for a high priest. And that makes sense because Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. He was not a, of the earthly priest tribe. And, uh, and as a result, uh, he would not have been able to stand in the office of a high priest. But Jesus fulfilled both king, priest, and prophet offices when he was here. Not natural kings, but he was a king. Uh, he's talked about his kingdom when he comes into his kingdom. Everybody understood that as the Messiah, he would have a kingdom. We know that he was a prophet. Jesus called himself a prophet. He said no prophet is without honor except in his own hometown, in his own country. But, uh, but Paul identifies that Jesus was our high priest. And, uh, and, and he expands on that a great deal. He'll continue to a little bit in the first part of uh, what we'll talk about tonight, uh, verses uh, 19 and 20 and 21. But uh, he's identified that Jesus... Uh, has made an eternal sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice that has to be made yearly, like on the Day of Atonement, that the high priest and the, the other priests, all the, those that made up the priesthood, had to, had to undergo. Uh, he is, um, chapter 10 is about change. It's, uh, he, uh, the, the, um, the foundation for chapter 10 goes back to the, the ninth chapter where he talks about the eternal sacrifice. He's uh, continuing to talk about the priesthood, and I want to remind you of verse 28. It says, so Christ, this is Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So he identifies both the priesthood and the sacrifice of Jesus with Jesus' return. Now that's the, that's the basis for, uh, for everything that he starts talking about the changes in, uh, in chapter 10. Now, there's a couple of changes that he makes mention of. The first uh, four verses of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, he talks about a change from the shadows to the real. From uh, verses 5 through 9, he talks about the change that came because of the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus coming to the earth, in other words. And then chapter in uh, chapter 10, verses 10 through 18, he talks about the changes that occur because man was regenerate. And as a result, if you put all these things together, the first half of the chapter, uh, chapter 10, is man's perfect standing with God. Because of the changes, man has perfect standing with God. Now his evil conscience has been dealt with, which none of the Old Testament sacrifices could do. No matter if they made sacrifice every, every year on the Day of Atonement, no matter what the high priest did on their behalf, they came away knowing they were still guilty before God. They may have dodged a bullet. They may have said, you know, okay, well, the sacrifice is supposed to cover us, but we know we're still guilty before God. But Jesus did away with all that. Now, folks, this is a real important point. You need to understand that, um, uh, well, uh, let's, I'll make those comments as we, as we go rather than take time up front. Let's start in chapter 10, verse 19. He's just talked about in verse 18 the remission of sins because of the blood of Jesus. Verse 19, having therefore, all of these things that he said up to this point is to come to a conclusion. Now, he's got, here's the break in chapter 10. The first part of chapter 10 was about the perfect standing that we have before God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. The last half of chapter 10 is going to be about practical Christianity, how to live right, how to apply the Word of God into your daily life. So here's where he starts. He says, having therefore, because Jesus did these things, because Jesus made a sacrifice for sin, having therefore, brethren, boldness. This word boldness is the same word translated uh, uh, confidence over in chapter 10 and verse 35. Cast not away your confidence. It, uh, it, it means liberty, it means assurance, it means something that belongs to you because of something that's already occurred. Now, if you're going to walk in righteousness, here's step number one. Here's the first and foremost thing you're going to need to know, and that is you have confidence to come before God. Now, that's the difference between a strong Christian and a weak Christian on its basis level. You find somebody that does not know who they are with God, they will never, ever, ever have confidence either in their authority or in who they are in Christ. Paul is saying, this is the ABCs. This is step one. Because Jesus died, because Jesus paid the price, you have confidence to come before God. 
Now, the problem is a lot of people don't. The problem is a lot of Christians don't have confidence to come before God. They think God's mad at them because of what they've done. And that just simply means that they don't understand what Jesus has done on their behalf. He says, having therefore confidence, or boldness as it's translated, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. Then he's going to give instructions. Now let me take these three verses together. First of all, he says we're supposed to have confidence. If you don't have confidence, you need to really pay attention because he's going to tell you how to get your confidence. He's going to speak by the Holy Ghost. Here's how you can know you're okay with God. He says we have confidence to do what? To enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, everything he's been talking about, the whole example he's been using is the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. That was the only day of the year that anybody could go into the holy of the, the, the place where the presence of God was. You remember the, uh, the tabernacle was divided into two sections, an outer room, which was called the holy place, the inner room, which was called the holiest of holies. Outside of that, outside of the tent proper, there was the courtyard with different uh, things. There was the altar of sacrifice. There was the, the brazen, uh, uh, the brazen altar. There was the, uh, the laver where the priest did the washings and so forth. But then there was a gate. If you look at the way that it's set up, if you look at a picture of the way that it was set up, there was only one entrance into the courtyard. There was only one way you could get to the temple. Now, when Jesus says, uh, well, for example, and we all are familiar with the scripture in uh, Psalm 100, verse 4, where it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. That's David talking about the tabernacle. The temple had not yet been built. That's David talking about the tabernacle. He's saying, come before the presence of God with thanksgiving and praise. He's saying there's only one way in. That's the way that David comes into the temple or the tabernacle. That's what this is a type of. Jesus is now the way. When Jesus said in John chapter 10, he says, I am the door. I'm the shepherd. And he comes in through the door. He's talking about the way into the presence of God. He's talking about the way. He said, anybody that comes in any other way is a thief. Talking about how the devil tries to get in. The devil tries to come in through deception. Jesus is talking about he is the way. He said himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I'm the gate. Everything about the tabernacle, everything about the temple referred to and and represented Jesus in some form or another. Jesus is saying, first and foremost, before anything else happens, he says, I'm the door. You can't get in except from me. All this idea that people have from different religions or a conglomeration of different religions, the gospel according to Oprah, All this stuff about there are many ways to God. If that's true, Jesus is not one of them. Because he said he's the only way. So he either lied or he told the truth. So he's either the only way or he's not any way. This is what this is talking about. Notice it says, having therefore, brethren, boldness or confidence to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. This word new means freshly slain. Now what happens to a sacrifice when you kill it? It's dead. The only way you can get the blood of the animal for the sacrifice is for that animal to die. This is what Paul is talking about, the new and living way. Here's the difference. Here's the change that occurs. He said Jesus is freshly slain. In other words, the sacrifice that Jesus made once and for all covers you today, tomorrow, and every tomorrow there is. That's never been true for the Jews up until this point. You get down toward the, the close to the day for the next day of atonement, you get a lot of sin stacked up. The guilt is piling up day after day after day after day after day. It's not that way in the, with Christ. He's a new, a freshly slain sacrifice, yet he's still alive. That's what he's saying. This is part of our boldness because he is the freshly slain sacrifice. What you did wrong today does not matter from the standpoint of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, certainly it matters to you and it should. But as far as the sacrifice was made, that's been paid. You remember in the Old Testament when, uh, uh, when Adam, and in, uh, Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, there was a Garden of Gethsemane, but they weren't in that. Uh, let me see if I can get this right. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, there we go, finally. You remember what God did? He dealt with them. He made the sacrifice. He gave them coats of uh, animal skin so that they could wear. But you remember he said, the Bible says that he put a cherubim with a flaming sword to keep the way of life, the way of the tree of life. Why did he do that? Well, the Bible says 
that was to keep Adam and Eve from going back and partaking of the tree of life and living in that fallen state forever. But what did the flaming sword represent? It represented the justice of God. Here's the cherubim, one of God's angels, warrior angel types. He's holding this flaming sword, looking every direction to make sure that anybody that comes to this tree of life has to first pay the price of God's justice. We've got a new and living way because Jesus is freshly slain, yet alive, and the justice has been paid. And so what happened? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, you remember what happened in the temple? In the temple, it said the Bible says that the, the, uh, the veil was ripped from top to bottom, not bottom to top, but from top to bottom, like an angel came down, took that thing in his hands, and just ripped it apart. Now, the, the um, uh, historical documents, Josephus uh, gives us record that this, um, uh, this curtain was um, 30 feet high. Let's see if I've got the dimensions right. Uh, 15 feet high, 30 feet wide, and one foot thick. I think it's pretty clear to see that no human being could rip this thing. So this was an act of God. Now, what happened to the priests when they found out? You know, remember the Bible says there was an earthquake when Jesus died on the cross. He gave up his spirit and released his spirit into the hands of God. Uh, We know what happened after that. He went three days into the belly of the earth. He spent three days in hell paying the claims of justice. In other words, getting rid of that flaming sword. But what happened to the priests? Well, we know there was an earthquake. There was a great earthquake. Everything, you know, as a matter of fact, the earthquake is what the, the Bible identifies with uh, the tearing of the veil from top to bottom. But what happened to the priests? How did they find out the veil was torn? Well, I'm sure after the earthquake, somebody is concerned about whatever has happened, and they go into the holy place, the outer part, not the holy of holies. Nobody could go in there except the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But they go into the outer place, and they see this thing opened. That's a real problem. Because if God's still there, if the presence of God is still there, they're dead. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. If the presence of God comes from behind that veil to where they are, in any form whatsoever, if they just look at it, they die instantly. We know that from the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Their face melts away and that's just the end of them. What's happened? The priests go in and see there is no presence of God there anymore. Now, was that widely broadcast? If you were the priest, would you be telling that? I I don't have an answer to the question. We don't have any historical records one way or the other. All we know about it is what the Bible says. There is no mention in any history of anything other than the fact there was an earthquake when Jesus died on the cross. But what happened? The high priests know there's nothing behind the curtain anymore. Now they repair the curtain. And folks, that's exactly what Judaism was about in, that Paul is writing to. Judaism was all about trying to fix and repair the veil. And Paul is saying, what are you wasting your time with that for? What are you wasting your time doing all the stuff that has to do with the veil, has to do with the Old Testament sacrifice? There's nobody behind the curtain anymore. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, having therefore boldness to enter into the holiest, that means the holy of holies, that means the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, thank God for the blood of Jesus, by or through a freshly slain yet living way. Here's your door, which he has consecrated or inaugurated, he began, in other words, for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Now the veil the Bible telling us right now that the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies separated us from the separated the priesthood from the, the presence of God. That was a type of Jesus flesh. So the new and living way was his own body that was offered up as a sacrifice. That's the way. And having a high priest over the house of God, then it tells us to do certain things. So what's it saying? It's saying that we have three privileges Three privileges. First thing it tells us as a part of our Christian life, practical Christianity. Because Jesus made a sacrifice, we have three privileges. Number one, we can come boldly into the presence of God. You have a right to come into the presence of God. Number two, the way has been prepared. In other words, the claims of justice have been satisfied. Folks, you don't ever, ever, ever Well, let me say it this way. If you ever 
are concerned about God's attitude towards you because of what you've done, what that means is you're trying to make your own way instead of accepting the way that he's already made. So number one, you're supposed to come boldly, come into the presence of God. Number two, the way has been prepared. And number three, somebody went before you to show you the way. That's why it's talking about we have a high priest over the house of God. Now, what does it mean, a high priest over the house of God? Let me remind you of uh, um, chapter 3 and verse 6. Because Paul talked about this before. This is the same phrase. I say Paul. I may have mentioned this before, but I think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, But Christ is a son over his own house. Whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence, here's what he's talking about, the boldness, the confidence. If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. So he's saying we have a high priest over the body of Christ. He's our high priest, but you've been made kings and priests. We've all been made kings and priests too, according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. You've been made a priest so you can go into the presence of God. But Jesus is your high priest. And he opened the door. He made the way. Now, what are we supposed to do? Now he's going to tell us three, uh, three duties that we have. Three privileges. The presence of God. The way has been prepared. In other words, justice has been satisfied. If you ever, ever, ever are feeling guilty trying to go before God, you're trying to make your own way. The, th- the, th- the only way to satisfy that, the only way to fix that, is to say, Father, forgive me for trying to make my own way. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Thank you that you consider me righteous. Now, the devil's going to be right there on your shoulder saying, what in the world are you saying you're righteous for? You know what you did. That has nothing to do with what Jesus paid for. Nothing whatsoever. Jesus paid the price to satisfy the claims of justice. That means God's on your side, no matter what you ever do. Now, remember, he's going to talk the rest of the chapter about practical Christianity. And I I guess I need to make a statement here. I know there are a lot of people that are listening to some real popular teachers about the gospel of grace, and, and now it's gone from the just the grace message to full grace and all this kind of stuff. If you think that I am associated with full what are known today as full grace teachers, by the end of the day, you're going to be very disappointed in me. So I just want to prepare you. Because I'm going to stick with what Paul said. I'm going to stick with what Hebrews says. And it'll make you wonder where we get this idea that's commonly promoted is grace when Paul talks about something else. So the three responsibilities, the three duties we have. First of all, he says, because we can come into the presence of God, verse 22, he says, let us draw near. First responsibility we have is to draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How are we going to draw near? The answer is very simple. Being assured in faith. Having an assurance of faith. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, see, that's what I want. I want to have that assurance in faith, but I don't have it. Well, the Bible says that that comes in two steps or two parts. Number one, it says having your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's justification. That's the part that Jesus paid the price for. How does that come? That comes by confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The second part of that is the last phrase in verse 22, and our bodies washed with pure water. That's sanctification. He's saying the way to draw near to God is, number one, know that you've been justified by the work of Jesus, and number two, be sanctified. Now, what is sanctification? Sanctification has two legs. Sanctification is, number one, the application of the Word of God in your life through confession. Number two, 1 John 1, 9, the confession of your sin when you miss it. Because that is the application of the blood of Jesus when you're in error. So you've got two legs to being able to draw near. One is justification, what Jesus did. That's what everybody is talking about today is full grace. But the other side is sanctification. Sanctification has to do with what you do. Now, folks, Jesus paid the price for sin. He satisfied the claims of justice. And some people will say, well, since Jesus did it, that's it. It's done. Well, it's done from the standpoint that it's provided for you. But even though it's provided for you, you still have a responsibility. That responsibility is to make Jesus the Lord of your life. That responsibility is to accept it and apply it into your life through believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessing him as your Lord. 
And even though Jesus has already done it, anybody that doesn't satisfy those two conditions are going to be left out. God makes the way, but it's still up to them. I've got a problem with the way people are talking about the unconditional love of God today. Because most times people are talking about the unconditional love of God, meaning I can do anything I want to do and it's okay with God. Now, folks, Jesus was sent unconditionally because God loves us. But receiving him and coming into the family of God is conditional. And in what is it conditional on? It's conditional upon faith. Just because God loved you and sent Jesus doesn't mean you're in. You've got to do something about it, right? You've got to apply or make application or receive whatever words you want to use. I don't care, but it all comes down to the same thing, and that is, according to Romans chapter 10, you've got to believe God's raised Jesus from the dead, number one. You've got to confess him with your mouth as, his, as him as your Lord and Savior. That's conditional. I don't care how you want to slice it and dice it. That's conditional. So what do we mean by the, condi- the unconditional love of God? He sent Jesus unconditionally. Jesus unconditionally paid the price, but you still have to apply it. And the application has conditions. Justification is conditional on believing and confessing, believing in and confessing Jesus as your Lord. The second part of this is your body's washed with or sprinkled with uh, with pure water. Now, what was that? Well, that was a type of uh, the Old Testament laver in the the courtyard. Once you came in, and and this will apply to the priest. Paul is really talking more about priests than he is anybody else. When the priest came in, they would have to go to the laver and they would have to wash themselves. There was a ritual washing that was necessary. Just because they were priests doesn't mean they could just sashay into the temple or the tabernacle. They couldn't do it. They had to go through, first and foremost, they had to stop by the laver. And the laver was this great big uh, brass or gold bowl that was polished to where it was like a mirror. And you had to reach in. It was a big, big, giant thing. I don't know how big it was, maybe about the size of the platform, maybe. But anyway, it's a great big thing, and the priest, there's plenty of room for everybody. The priest would go in, and they would dip in that, and as they dipped in, they could see themselves. In other words, it's a type of the Word. The Bible says, Paul talks about, and, and uh, uh, well, Paul says we look in a glass. Uh, James talked about being doers of the Word, seeing ourselves in the Word, and going away and remembering who we were. That's what it's talking about. That's what the Old Testament uh, labor was a type of. And that's what the high priests had to do. They had to wash their bodies. It wasn't enough that they were priests. They had to be clean. Now, Paul uses that same example for us. Now, here's where people get messed up. Because they start thinking immediately, okay, now that means God's holding my mistakes against me. No, it doesn't. It means you have the same responsibility, you have the same duty to apply the word where you've missed it. That's all it means. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what Paul did in Romans chapter 7. He said, man, I'm having trouble because my flesh is doing things my spirit doesn't want to do. Well, that means he's in error then, doesn't it? That means he's committing sin. Did Paul say, well, that's it, too bad. You know, I thought we'd make it, but I guess we won't. No, he found the key. He found the key was to understand, number one, there's no condemnation. In other words, the price, the claims of justice have been satisfied. Number two, be led by the Spirit. Well, what is the Spirit going to lead you to do? He's always going to lead you in line with the Word. He's always going to lead you in line with the Word. Now, John talked about this, and John said, if we say that we have no sin, then we're lying and there's no truth in us. Now, some people will say that's not for the church. Well, uh, stop and think about this for a minute. Who do we know? What do we know about John? Historical records tell us that John walked in love to such a degree that they tried to kill the guy and couldn't. They put him in a vat of boiling oil and he wouldn't die. Sounds to me like the guy knows his authority. Sounds to me like he understood how to overcome the flesh. Sounds to me that he had a pretty good idea, a pretty good handle on walking free from the power of sin. Yet even John said, if you think that you don't have to deal with sin, if you think any of us don't have to deal with sin, you're out of your mind. You're lying to yourself. Which means we're all going to have to deal with sin, doesn't it? How do we deal with sin? First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins. Now, folks, if you're walking in love, if you're walking in, in obedience to the word, there's nothing to confess. Because that walking in the Word, that application of the Word, that being a doer of the Word, sanctifies you or separates you from the sin that's in the world. But we're all going to mess up from time to time. 
What happens when we do mess up? What happens is we take 1 John 1, 9, which is the application of the word. So you apply the word to keep from sinning. You apply the word when you sin. You say, Father, I confess that I missed it. I thank you that you cleanse me from all unrighteousness, meaning my unrighteous action. And you restore me to fellowship. So see, there's a lot of teaching going on nowadays that are saying, well, it's all about justification. Well, Paul said that that was only one of the two legs. So people that are trying to teach this full grace message, where it's all about the finished work of Jesus, it's all about justification, they're not walking, they're, they're not walking according to Paul's uh, instruction, the Holy Ghost instruction of the Christian life. They're hopping through life on one leg. Because sanctification is just as much a part of your Christian duty as justification is. Hello? You with me? Now, folks, I'm not writing this. I'm reading it. You understand that, don't you? I know a lot of people are not going to like this. But this is what Paul is saying. I'll even prove to you by the end of the night that it's Paul. I've been looking forward to this one. I've got to tell you. I'm... Okay, so number one, he says in verse 22, let us draw near. Here's your first duty as a Christian. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our, con- our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, that means no guilt, no consciousness of guilt. And our bodies washed with pure water. This is a type of the washing of the water with the word. It's the application of the word to your life. To either keep from sin or to get back in fellowship with God when you do sin. Could it be any simpler than that? So your first duty is to walk near to God. Draw near to God. Now that's going to be important because he's going to talk about unpardonable sins. He's going to talk about people losing their salvation later on. And you never find anybody that has a problem with the unpardonable sin unless they're not walking close to God. People that are walking close to God, the unpardonable sin may be something interesting to talk about, but it's never an issue for them. Because your first duty is your relationship with God. Draw near to Him. How do you do that? In faith. Second thing he says in verse 23, he said, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful at promise. Now, folks, I read verse uh, chapter 9, verse 28. To begin with, let me read that to you again. It says, O Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. It's connecting the cross with the rapture, the cross with the second coming. That's the context that Paul's talking about. This word faith, I have no idea why it's translated faith, because it's the word hope. It's the same word, same root word. It's a different form, but it's the same root word as he uses over in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. I have no idea why the translators translated this faith. But it says, let us hold fast the profession of our hope. Now, what is he talking about, the profession of our hope? He's talking about that Jesus is coming back. Your first duty as a Christian is your relationship with God, draw near to God. How do you do that? With a full assurance of faith. Your second duty as a Christian is your relationship with or your interaction with the world. What is the church's responsibility in our interaction with the world? Is it to get them saved? No, first and foremost is to tell them Jesus is coming back. Now that should be an incentive for them to get saved. But that's our responsibility according to what Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost. You have a duty as a Christian to hold fast your profession. The word profession is the word confession. We're supposed to hold fast our confession. In other words, the church is supposed to be talking all the time about Jesus coming back. We got away from that for a long time. Used to be 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever it was, there was a lot of talk in the church about Jesus coming back. Then the economy turned around and everything got good in the Reagan years. And the church quit caring about Jesus coming back. Things got a little bit more comfortable and people quit talking about Jesus coming back. Well, now things are changing a little bit again and people are talking about Jesus coming back. We need to continually talk about Jesus coming back. Folks, Jesus is coming back. You know, it's an amazing thing to me. I grew up in a Baptist church, denominational people, good people, loved God with all their hearts. They just didn't know anything about the Bible. Bless their hearts. But they did. They tried. You know, I'm not trying to criticize anybody. But it's an amazing thing. They would not believe in speaking in tongues if Jesus appeared and said it's for today. They wouldn't believe in healing for everybody. If Jesus showed up and said, yes, absolutely, it's for everybody. But you know what they would believe? And they believe with all their hearts. 
They believed that someday Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the risen man Jesus was coming back. And that when he came back and when he appeared in the sky, graves were going to open all over the world. And body, bones were going to connect back together that had been separated. And flesh was going to appear on those bones. And people that had been blown up and their bodies had been disintegrated. Those molecules can't destroy matter. Those molecules are still out there somewhere. They would be gathered back together and flesh would become part of that too. And then people that came with Jesus that have already died would be reunited with their bodies. But they wouldn't believe in the healing. Wouldn't believe in speaking in tongues. If God can do that with the rapture, and, and people that believe in the rapture really don't argue that. Graves are going to be opened up. Body, bones and bodies and flesh is, is going to be instantly created on those bodies. They'll be, meet Jesus in the air, reunited with the spirits of the people that left them at, at one time before, and all of a sudden meet Jesus in the air. But believing for healing, no, that's too hard. Do you realize what you're supposed to hope in? Do you realize how miraculous Jesus coming back, just coming back, number one, if none of the other stuff happened, do you realize how miraculous that would be? And we worry about whether God can pay our bills. We worry about whether God can get us enough money to get through the month. Folks, that's one reason why we're supposed to hold fast our profession of the hope that we have that Jesus is coming back. But that has to do with our responsibility to the world. Our duty as a Christian in our interaction with the world. The third thing that he says is in verse 24. It has to do with our interaction with one another. He said, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. There are three things. Verse 22 talks about faith. Verse 23 talks about hope. Verse 24 talks about love. Somebody else wrote about faith, hope, and love, didn't they? Isn't that what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth? Didn't he talk to them about being the foundation for our Christian life and, and the method that they should use in the operation of the gifts of the Spirit? So what's he saying our responsibility to one another is? Our responsibility to one another is to encourage, to incite each other so that we all walk in love. You see somebody having a problem, somebody that's, that's, maybe somebody has offended them, maybe they're having a problem on their job, rather than joining in with them and talking about, yeah, you know, my boss is a lousy guy too. You're supposed to encourage them to walk in love. <laughs> I got an email, uh, it's been months ago, I don't know how long ago it was now, but there was somebody in the church that uh, emailed me, I wouldn't tell who it was even if I remembered. But uh, anyway, somebody emailed me and they're talking about all the problem on their job and this, that, and the other, the, the supervisor, and they did something that was underhanded and, and all this kind of stuff. And how do I get out of this job? Can I believe God for another one, this kind of stuff? So I just, you know, very kindly, well, as kindly as I can, um, suggested that she believed God for favor. She said, well, okay, yeah, I've heard you talk about that favor stuff before. How do I do that? I said, go to your supervisor and say, listen, I understand that there's been some tension between us. What can I do to help your job, help make your job better? Well, the email conversation went dead. <laughs> I think she wanted to apply her faith so that a truck would hit her supervisor rather than, you know, but folks, long story short, this thing worked out wonderfully. Her supervisor is so on her side now, so promoting her in the company to her bosses and that kind of stuff. It's just turned things around. And she emailed me back telling me some of the good things that happened. And she said, who knew? <laughs> I thought, yeah, who knew? Folks, love never fails. Instead of trying to, trying to get advice on how I can sue somebody, we need to apply love. That's what this is talking about. That's what our interaction with one another is supposed to be based on. That's the foundation of our interaction with one another in everything that we do. To provoke one another so that we walk in love and do good works. Okay. I thought that would really encourage you. So he speaks of three privileges and he speaks of three duties. Now he's going to talk about something that's not real pleasant, and he's going to give the church a warning. He says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and, all, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
Now, let me, um, uh, let me refer to something. Let me take apart the, the, the back end of the verse before I talk about the rest of it. This phrase, the assembling of ourselves together, is a phrase that uh, at least part of it is used uh, in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me read it to you. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul said, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. That's the same phrase, gathering together and assembling ourselves together. It's the same phrase. And they're both used in connection with Jesus coming back. So he said, I want to encourage you. Our duty as a Christian is in that our interaction with one another is so that we provoke each other to walk in love and to do good works. Not not render evil for evil, but to do good works. Now, he said there are some who are operating in a different manner. He said we should exhort one another to assemble ourselves together. In other words, be together so that or because of our belief that Jesus is coming back. But he's not just saying, now y'all go to church regular, okay? That's not what he's saying here. Where he's talking about forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, these, these words literally means there are those that have turned their back on Christianity. And he uses that, the example of that, as having given up public worship. He said, we're supposed to provoke one another to good works. Well, how are we going to do that if we're not together? How are we going to provoke one another to love if we're not together? He said, now don't be like some are. So some must be like this. What are, what are those people like? They have forsaken the assembling of themselves together. In other words, they made a conscious decision to turn their back on Christianity. He said, and, but we should be otherwise. We should exhort one another to be together so that we can provoke to love and good works. So much more as we see the day approaching. The closer and closer we get to the end, the more we need each other. Now, again, folks, I can't emphasize this enough. He's not just talking about regular church attendance. That's good. That's important. He's talking about those that have given up on Christianity. He goes further and he says in verse 26, for if we sin willfully. Now, notice he says we. I think he says we because it's a warning to all of us. But I think he's trying to soften the blow. Notice he does not say if we sin willingly. See, again, people that don't know who they are in Christ, they don't know about justification, they don't know about sanctification, they see this and they think, oh, no. Maybe I'm one of those that sinned willfully and there's no hope for. Folks, that's stupid. He's talking about somebody that has already made a conscious choice to turn their back on Jesus and Christianity. And he says, but, but, it, but it's a warning to all of us. He said, for if we sin willfully... After that we have received the knowledge of the truth, well, the knowledge of the truth is what gets you saved, isn't it? So he's saying if we sin. Now, this word sin is not a generic word for sin, a mistake, an error. It's talking about an act of apostasy. He's literally saying if we willfully apostize, turn our back on Christianity, turn our back on Jesus. After we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now this word despise means to utterly reject or cast out. He's saying, look, it worked this way even under the old covenant. He that utterly rejected the law of Moses... He died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, verse 29, of how much sore punishment suppose you that he, shall he be thought worthy who has three things, trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of Jesus, the blood of the covenant? I, I read that wrong. How much sore judgment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, number one, and, number two, has counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and, number three, has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Now, folks, can I ask you a question? Isn't there this idea that since we're in the age of grace, it's the church age, it's the age of grace, 
God's not as harsh as he was under the old covenant. Would somebody tell me where God changed? I mean, just for a point of reference, God said, I'm God, I change not. Yet again, there's this idea that grace means God's okay with whatever happens. No, he's not. That's why it's really important for you to know your privileges and your duties as a Christian. Now, that does not mean God's standing up, you know, got off his throne with a giant fly swatter waiting to see you do something wrong so he can slap you. That's not what that means. It does mean that there are two classes of people. Number one, those that receive Jesus, which means justification is theirs, and the application of the word sanctification. And the second class of people are those that reject him. Now, those that reject him, God is just as judgmental because in their case, the flaming sword is theirs. The claims of justice have not been satisfied on their behalf. And that's what Paul's trying to say. He's saying, don't take this too lightly. Why? It's important for him to make this point because he doesn't want others to follow the path of those that have already turned away. It'd be real easy to say, well, look what they did. Some of the people that turned away may even still be claiming to be Christians or claiming that they're still okay with God. See, we kind of have rose-colored glasses on when we read the Bible. We think that there's a real real specific line of delineation between people that are saved and people that are not saved. The people that aren't saved are, are openly saying, I'm not saved. Well, folks, that's no more true in their day than it is in our day. You've got a lot of people claiming to be saved that <laughs> heaven help them. I'm just full of good news tonight, aren't I? I want you to see, I'm just reading. Of how much sore punishment. If people died under, if people that rejected Moses' law, which was a shadow, which didn't make complete sense anyway, if people died without mercy under Moses' law by rejecting the sacrifices that were set up, which were fulfilled in Jesus, how much worse is it going to be for them that reject Jesus. And again, he's not talking about the unsaved. He's talking about people that were saved and turned their back on it. Look, I would like to think that there may have been one or two people through the history of the church that were saved and lost their salvation. Paul seems to disagree. Well, what does that mean to me? Look, if I'm drawing near, keeping my eyes on Jesus coming back and provoking people to walk in love, <laughs> it doesn't matter. I mean, I hate it for their sake, but I'm in, I'm okay. And the unpardonable sin or counting the blood of Jesus as an unworthy thing, none of that is ever going to have any effect on me because I'm in and I want to stay in. But the people that this applies to, you know as well as I do, the people that always argue about the unpardonable sin, they're people, number one, that don't walk in fellowship with God. They do not purpose to grow in the knowledge of the word. They have no real desire to do what the Bible says to do as far as Christian lifestyle. They're trying to skirt around on the edges hoping they're okay. And somebody will raise a point or somebody will raise a question. And it's like, oh, my goodness, am I okay? I, I've had people come up to me. Bless their hearts, baby Christians, young Christians, immature Christians. They'll come up and say, Pastor Mike, you said this. How do I know that's not me? Well, folks, the answer is real simple. Is your desire to grow in the things of God? Are you seeking eternal things first? That's our responsibility. Folks, Jesus did not die for your sins so that you could live like the unsaved. Now, I'm not saying everybody that does live like the unsaved is not going to make it to heaven. That's between them and God, not my problem, not my business. But that's not why Jesus shed his blood. Jesus shed his blood so that you could walk in authority, so that you could grow in the knowledge of the truth, so that you could renew your mind to the word and do the works of Jesus here on the earth. Well, Pastor Mike, I don't want that. I just want God to heal me or I just want God to deliver me. I just want him to, to bless me and then get out of my way and let me do my thing. Good luck with that. I got nothing to say. 
of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot. Again, this is somebody that's made a, a determined choice. And the Bible says, and I doubt very seriously if anybody has ever said, okay, I'm going to tread, tread underfoot the blood of Jesus. Who thinks like that? But when you turn your back on the eternal sacrifice, that which justified you and that which sanctifies you through application, when you do that, the Holy Ghost is saying three things. You're treading underfoot the Son of God. Number two, you're counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. And number three, you're doing despite unto the Spirit of grace. Verse 30, for we know him that has said, vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense or repay, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord is judge shall judge his people. Folks, those things are still true, even in the age of grace. Now, again, that's not a problem for me because I'm living by the word. Well, Pastor Mike, I don't want it to be a problem for me either. Then start growing in the word. The answer is simple. It's so good to be in, I don't know why everybody doesn't want to be in. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Can I give you an example of this one? Remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, it says that, that uh, um, oh, what was the guy's name? The king of, uh, the king of Persia. Uh, I'm trying to say Belteshazzar. I don't think that's right, but anyway, it's something like that. He's having a big party. And in the middle of his big party, he's using some of the, uh, the, uh, the cups and the, uh, the instruments of the temple that they took from Jerusalem. And so he's having a big party. Boy, he's swooping it up. He's showing off how, big a, how great a king he is and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, there's a hand that appears and starts writing on the wall. And it writes in his language, this night I'm separating the kingdom from you. This guy falls dead from a heart attack. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. The Bible talks about hell in terms of weeping and gnashing of teeth. When people see what they missed, when people see that they missed the opportunity to miss hell and gain heaven. Folks, we're not talking about people who are going to say, well, shoot, I guess I should have done that after all. We're talking about people. The phrase that gets me is gnashing with their teeth. People in such torment that they begin tearing their own flesh. Or the equivalent thereof. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. Now Paul's going to turn around and start talking to the church again. He's just referred to people that have, have made a decision to reject Jesus after they were saved. Now we don't know what this is. We don't know if this means they went back to Judaism. We don't know if this means they just gave up on everything altogether. Could be any number of things, I guess. Maybe it means they became idol worshipers. It could be any number of things. We don't know. All we know is they turned away from Christianity. They turned away from Jesus. But now Paul's going to talk to the church. He says, but you call to remembrance the former days. Folks, I want you to understand something. This book was written about 65 A.D., it's about four or five years, four, somewhere in that ter territory, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit yet less. But it was written a short time before two things. Before Paul died, Paul died in about 66 A.D., um, killed, martyred, most likely. And then secondly, in 70 A.D., the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. He's writing to the Jews that are in Jerusalem. And as a result, some of these people, remember Jesus was raised from the dead in about 33, 34 A.D., somewhere around there. So we're talking about uh, a 30-year period. There are some people in the church that were there when Jesus was raised from the dead. There are people that were there that were saved on the day of Pentecost. There are people there that were in the beginning. And Paul is saying, remember what it was like in the beginning. Well, what was it like in the beginning? Well, let me, let me remind you. Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It says, and they continued in the apostles' doctrine, 
Let me read this. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord, no forsaking the assembling of themselves together. In the beginning, man, they were there, and they were there all the time. And they continuing daily and with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That's what it was like in the beginning. And Paul says, call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, when you were first saved. Now, not everybody was saved at the beginning, but some of them were. And some were saved as the Lord added to the church in, pre, in uh, subsequent years and times and so forth. But everybody has heard what it was like when it first started. I mean, wouldn't that be something you'd want to know if you got saved, uh, if the church starts in 30, 33, 34 A.D., and you got saved in 42 A.D.? Wouldn't you want to know what it was like when Jesus was still around? I mean, Peter's around. You could ask him. You could ask what it was like on the day of Pentecost. Don't you think stuff like that would be talked about? Man, it would be if I was there. I'd want to know. What do you mean rushing mighty wind? What do you mean tongues of fire, cloven tongues of fire? I still don't know what that means. I see all the pictures of it, but is that really what it was like? Peter could tell me. Peter and the rest of the guys are looking at each other saying, your head's on fire. Yours is too. They'd know. I mean, folks, these things would be talked about. We're not talking fables. We're talking about real stuff. So everybody's going to have some kind of knowledge of what it was like in the beginning. And that's where Paul goes. He says, remember what it was like when you first got saved. Well, what was it like for them when he first got saved? Here's what Paul identifies. In which, after you were illuminated, you endured a a great fight of afflictions. Folks, I want you to know something. Paul was responsible for some of their afflictions. These days, when he was, when the church first started, and shortly thereafter, Paul was one of the ones persecuting the church in Jerusalem. It wasn't widely accepted. The priesthood hadn't come in. Paul's fighting them tooth and nail. You remember the hardships that you endured after you first got saved. Now, he's going to describe what some of those hardships were in verse 33. He said, partly, in other words, for part of you, you were made a gazing stock. Gazing stock means a public spectacle. Well, in what way? Both by reproaches and afflictions. The word afflictions means cruel acts. The word of reproaches means to defame or insult. In other words, he's saying some of you were put out in public in front of other people and insulted and, and had many cruel things done to you. Now, he's going to talk about another group. And partly, another part of you, You endured trouble, in other words, while you became companions of them that were so used. Not all of you were made a public spectacle, but some of you were persecuted because you became friends of those that were made public spectacles. Folks, it wasn't all buckets and roses here. It was tough. If you want an interesting study, look at when the church grows in the book of Acts. It's always when they're persecuted. Not when they're comfortable. It's when they're persecuted. That's when the church begins to grow. You know why? Because when you're persecuted, when things are tough, you've got to decide, is this really what I'm going to do or not? There's no lukewarmness to it. Now, whenever things good and you have to decide, should I be uh, outspoken about what I believe or should I lay back? You know, it might affect my business. Uh, it might affect who does business with me and stuff like that. When, that. when that's the concern, forget the church growing. Because it's all about what's in it for me. But when you see the church persecuted, when you see the pressure coming from the outside and not the church messing up from the inside, you see the, the pressure coming from the outside, that's when the church grows. Because that's what makes people stand up and say, I know this may cost me, but I believe this and I'm going to declare it. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see some of those days return. Verse 34, he talks about something else about them. He said, you had compassion on me in my bonds. So please notice something. The author knows that the readers know who he is. 
No question. The author knows. You know who's writing to you. Now, there is no name put on this letter. So how is that possible unless it was attached to another letter? Which Galatians says there was something else attached to it. Galatians says, you see what a large letter I wrote to you. What was the problem with the churches at Galatia? The Jews were coming trying to destroy things and get the Christians to go back to Judaism. So what does Paul do? He writes a letter to the Christians, the Gentile Christians in Galatia, and he attaches the letter of the, 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 that we know of as the book of Hebrews, knowing full well this book is going to go back to Jerusalem where the Jews are being sent out from to destroy the churches. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 21. Let me show you something here real quickly. I know I'm running out of time, but let me, let me cover this real quick. It goes pretty fast from here. Acts chapter 21. Paul said, you had compassion on me and my bonds. What does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us that Paul returned. There's, there's a couple of times that Paul went to Jerusalem. One was in chapter 15 at what we know of as the council at Jerusalem. Everybody agrees that that happened around 50 A.D. But in chapter 21, it says Paul returns to Jerusalem. This is a, as a result of the, the, um, uh, the prophecies and the different things where the Holy Ghost witnesses to him that he's going to be uh, put in bondage, he's going to be put in chains in Jerusalem, all that kind of stuff. That happened in uh, chapter 20 and some of the previous verses. But in chapter 21, please notice it says when he got to Jerusalem. Here's what it says. Um, uh, verse 15, after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. Okay, now they're in Jerusalem. Notice it says that uh, that others came to him in verse 20, and when they had heard of it, they glorified the Lord. Paul is telling about what happened in his ministry and so forth. They glorified the Lord, and notice, here's what the people in Jerusalem are saying about the Jerusalem church. Here's what I want you to see. Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Now, Paul knows that's a problem. They don't know it yet because this letter is not going to be written for another 15 years. But this is where Paul gets put in prison. This is where Paul gets put in bondage. Notice it says in verse, uh, oh, which one do we want to see here? Um, Verse 33, then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. This is after the Jews from Asia stir up trouble against him. In other words, what I'm saying is Paul is not talking about how that they sent him an offering in Rome. Now, I know that's a real popular, real common thing that people talk about, but that is not what Paul is talking about in this verse at all. Back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. He's he's reminding them of how they used to operate. He said, you had compassion of me in my bonds, period. Now, you can, from the language, try to make a case that he's saying, well, yeah, you had compassion on me in, in, when I was in jail, and, and, and then you sent me an offering and because you knew that you had a better reward in heaven. That's a very weak argument based on the language. Based on the Greek language, that's a very weak argument. A better argument, a stronger argument, is that he's saying, I'm still reminding you of what things used to be like, what you used to do when you were in trouble. Under hardships... Even when you were made a laughing stock in front of everybody, even those of you that were persecuted because of your association with others that were made public spectacles, and you took compassion on me in my bonds. In other words, you had compassion on me in Acts chapter 21. When I was there in your city and they put me in bondage, you had compassion on me. Then the next thing that he says, and you took the, uh, how does it say it? And took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. You know what the word spoiling means? It means seizure. Now, like I said, I know it's a popular thing for people to say, well, see, the Jews of Jerusalem sent Paul an offering. You can't prove that from language. That's a very weak argument. But you can prove from history that the Jews' possessions were taken from them by the Romans. So it means one of two things. It either means that they spoiled themselves, and the Jerusalem church was always known to be impoverished. Everybody else is sending offerings back to Jerusalem. So the idea that the Jerusalem church is sending Paul an offering is pretty weak. Why would they send Paul an offering? They're trying to destroy everything that he's doing. 
Paul's the greatest opposition. In Acts chapter 21, the Jews from Asia are the ones that stir up the trouble and cause him to be taken captive to begin with. Why would the Jerusalem church be sending Paul an offering? Doesn't make sense. But Paul is talking about two separate things. He said, you had compassion on me and my bonds. In other words, you used to be walking in love. You used to understand the relationship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And when the civil authorities took your possessions, you suffered that joyfully. How? Knowing that in heaven you have an eternal and better reward. He didn't say you rioted. He didn't say you stormed the capital. He said you took joyfully the seizure of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. As a result, he mentions these things about who they used to be and how they used to operate. He says, cast not away, therefore, your confidence. This word confidence is the same word boldness over in verse 19. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. It's the same word that's used over in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 21, which says, if our heart condemneth us not, then we have confidence toward God. Same word used over in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14, where it says, uh, uh, this is the confidence that we have in him. We ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We know he hears us. And if we know he hears us, we have what we ask for. Same word. He says, cast not away, therefore, your confidence. In other words, he's saying, don't give up. You guys used to be in faith. You guys used to operate in faith even when people stole your stuff. You knew that you had a reward in heaven. Don't give up. Cast not away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. There's a reward for holding on to your confidence in Jesus, for holding on to Christianity, holding on to the realities of who we are in Christ, even when things are going against you. Now, folks, most people are wanting to use their faith so that things go for them and go their way. But things are not always going to go our way. And Paul talks about that. Verse 36, For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. The reward comes after you've done the will of God and exercise patience. Now, a lot of people are patient because they have to. They can't do anything about their situation. But they haven't done the will of God, so there's no promise attached to it. There's no reward. Patience is only an issue after you've done the will of God. Which means if you're not acting on the word, if you're not applying the word, if you're not doing what the Bible says to do, you can be patient and wait till Jesus comes back and you're not going to have any reward for what's happened or in the middle of what's happened. Again, we're not, we're talking about the difference between this gushy, unconditional love of God and the conditions of applying the word of God so that you receive the promises. Every promise is conditional, folks. Every one of them. And the fulfillment of the condition is always the same, and that's faith. But it's faith and patience that brings you the promise or brings you the reward. Verse 37. For yet a little while. You know what the Greek says? For yet a very, very little while. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus coming back. He's saying one of the things that should help us hold on even in the middle of hardships and hard places is that Jesus is coming back and it's just a very, very little while. That was 2,000 years ago that the Holy Ghost inspired him to say very, very little while. What would it be now? Verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. This is the first part of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. It's an Old Testament quote. Now the just shall live by faith. He's saying don't give up. I know you're in some hard places. I know you're in some difficulty, but don't give up. Never, ever, ever give up. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Here's a condition. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to the church. Give up. I know you're tempted to draw back. This is exactly what the devil does with every one of us. He tries to influence us to give up and turn back. Don't do it. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man shall draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them. In other words, Paul is saying, he's encouraging them by the Holy Ghost. He said, I know know you're not one of those that will turn away. We are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What's he talking about the saving of the soul? He's talking about Jesus coming back. 
We can use this term, and it is used in in, uh, James chapter 1, referring to the renewing of the mind. But in this case, in this context, he's talking about Jesus is coming back, and that's the redemption of man, spirit, soul, and body. Folks, we have responsibilities. We have duties as Christians. Thank God for the privileges that we have. But I think, well, I don't know. Let me just say it this way. It's easy to talk about the privileges without talking about the duties. But privileges always come with duties attached. Thank God for the privileges. We can draw near. The way's been opened. The way's been prepared. And we've got somebody that went ahead of us to show us the way. But you've got a duty. You've got a duty in your relationship to God to draw near to Him. You've got a duty in your relationship, your interaction with the world. And that is to hold fast the profession of the hope that Jesus is coming back. And third, you've got a responsibility or a duty in your interaction with other Christians. And that is to provoke one another to walk in love and to do good works. Amen? Thank God Jesus is coming back. Let's all stand together. Why don't we just do that? Why don't we just lift our hands and thank God because Jesus is coming? When's he coming, Pastor Mike? Well, the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. I know some people that write books think they do. But they don't. But thank God he's coming. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your great plan of redemption. Thank that you've made a perfect standing for us that we might draw near to you, that we can come boldly into your presence without any sense of guilt, no matter what we've done. No sense, no guilt, no condemnation. No matter what's happened, we can come before you knowing that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And if we failed in, since then, Father, we can apply the word of God to be sanctified by simply confessing that we've missed it, knowing that you don't hold it against us, knowing that you recognize that our dust is our flesh is dust and you accept us willingly and cleanse us as if we had never made a mistake father thank you that jesus is coming soon help us be effective help us be as effective as 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 possible we don't want to be as effective as humanly possible father we want to be as effective as the holy ghost can make us so that we get the work done that we need to do and sweep multitudes into the kingdom of God before Jesus comes. Oh, thank you, Father, for the precious fruit of the earth. Thank you that you have long patience for it until you receive the early and the latter rain. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the rain. Thank you, Father, that we're justified, that we're sanctified by the word. And thank you, Father, that we're equipped with power from on high. To do the works of Jesus. Come quickly Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed.